You look out onto your front porch and see a large box has been delivered. It sags with weight and a shape that is almost exactly that of a human head. What are you supposed to do? You check the return address to see an ominous name scrawled out. Stephen King. That was the house my guest grew up in. Kind of. Ah, you'll see. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Michael Brent Collings. For those unaware, Michael Brent Collings is an incredible author recognized globally as one of the top 100 authors to ever write in the horror genre. He's also got a very impressive resume with over 50 published books in various genres, and on top of all that, he is a super funny, genuinely great guy with a lot of insights in this sizable range of expertise, and also a pleasure to talk to. Let's find our inner demons and unleash them upon the printed page. Welcome to the show, Michael Brent Collings. How's it going? I'm glad to be here. Thank you for for having me in this lovely virtual day. Yes, thank you so much for being here. It's awesome to have you on. Uh, why don't you give a little introduction to the audience about who you are and what you do? So my name's Michael Brent Collings, and as we went over before the show, that is actually my name. It's not a typo. Um, my parents named me all one word because they're like, he's going to be small and smart and probably snarky, so let's make sure everybody hates him. Um, but what I do for a living is I'm a writer. I've written coming up on 50 books. Most of them have been pretty successful, um, uh, been a bestseller a bunch of times, uh, Bram Stoker Award finalist, Dragon finalist. Um, I've written a couple of movies which were awesome screenplays that through the magic of Hollywood became movies. That's about the best you can say for them. Um, you know, but the check cleared and, and I'm delighted to be able to do a job that basically I'm, I'm selling my dreams and people enjoy buying them for some reason. So I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> no, that's, I think that's awesome. You know, that like you found what you wanted to do and like, it's going really well. And that's incredible because I don't think you said it, but it was one of those things that like in looking at putting this interview together, you are ranked incredibly well as a horror author. Yeah. Yeah. I do. Okay. I do. I do a bit of everything. Like, um, you know, I've literally written humor all the way to horror and everything in between. I've even written romance under a pen name. So like I'm a storyteller, I just tell stories and I've been lucky enough that I have fans that will read them all, you know, um, but I'm definitely best known for horror and for scaring people, um, which is fun. And there's a lot of good to be had from that. And it's nice in a day, you know, like today where it's so scary in the real world that sometimes we need to take refuge from that in things that are scarier, but not real, you know, so we can survive the book. Maybe we can get through COVID or all the craziness outside. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's an interesting way to think about coping where you're like, wow, things are terrible out here. And then you read the book and you're like, wow, things are even more terrible in here. <laughs> right. And well, and I remember when COVID, like when it first started and we'll have to talk about COVID because that's the world we live in. Uh, but like it all started and I went on to the movie, you know, like to stream something like everybody in the world did. And the number one ranked movie on Apple, iTunes, whatever was was Contagion, which is literally I mean, it looks like a roadmap for COVID. It is just the craziest thing. And I like clicked that and I was like, do people really want to watch that right now? But they do. You know, my son's rewatching um, reruns of The Last Ship, which was a, a kind of an action thriller, again, about this whole world shut down because of this massive disease. So it's funny because sometimes we like hide our heads in the sand. We're like, I want nothing to do with that. I'm overdrawn at the bank. I don't even want to see my bank's logo. But, you know, sometimes we run towards that and we challenge it. And, and that's good for us. It's necessary. It's like training wheels for life sometimes. Yeah, for sure. I I definitely was one of those people that picked up like a hard copy of Contagion uh, two months into it or something. Right. Uh, like, you know what? This is actually kind of a funny look at like, oh, look at how bad it could get. <laughs> and there's there's that to be said, you know, like that's the part. A lot of people do read scary books because it is. It's like, well, at least I'm not being chased by an axe murderer. So I can handle the fact that, you know, my daughter rolled up pregnant with her crack dealing boyfriend. You know, at least there's no axe murderer in the mix. So we will take what we can get. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how many times you can use it as an escape before you start a, a paranoia about axe murderers. Yeah, well, and there's that too. Is I, you know, too much of anything is bad for you. Too much water, you can, you can drink too much, and you know your internal organs can start to fail because you've flooded yourself. And water is about as benign as it gets. So I, I am a believer. Like at some point, you do have to take your foot off the pedal and just slow down. Whatever you're doing, you know, if you're reading if you're you know your media consumption your social media consumption your job can be the same way you know how many people have lost marriages because they spent all their time at work and and you know their family has disappeared while they were making partner or whatever so i think no matter what you do you do have to be able to step away and and become more well-rounded because otherwise yeah you end up in that little rabbit hole of of paranoia and conspiracy and that's that's no good for anybody <laughs> yeah for sure so tangent aside, I was going to ask, you know, obviously you'd said you're a storyteller at heart. Like what got you into writing for the very first time? Like, what really got you in? My dad, uh, my dad was the creative writing director for a, for a university. So it was like, it was in the air. You know, if you if your dad is a car dealer, you know about cars because dad brings all the cars home. And our version of that was we were poorer because teachers don't make rock star money, you know. Um, but he brought home, you know, an old electric typewriter that they were throwing out at school kind of thing. And um, and there was books everywhere. And he had this library that was like this magical place because he like I say, we didn't have tons of money, but he just built stacks for his books. And there's thousands of them lined up everywhere in the walls and you know there was like this running joke that if someone wasn't in bed on time you know as the kids you check the bathroom because they're going to be in there pretending to go to the bathroom for like 45 minutes while they're reading a book my mom was like you are either ill or reading get out so it just was it was everywhere you couldn't not write you know all my siblings write they all read they're not professional storytellers like i am but writing and reading has been a big part of everybody's life. You just couldn't avoid it. Gotcha. Yeah. It seems like that really becomes deeply ingrained when you, you know, you grow up with it. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's wonderful. I tell people, if you can read, you will never be lonely. And because you can experience all these things and have all these imaginary friends and go different places. So you'll never be bored or lonely. And if you can write, you'll never be out of work. I mean, we all have ups and downs, but we live in such a uh, sort of communication intensive environment that if you can communicate clearly through written word, you're going to be in demand wherever you go. People really need that to survive now. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely correct. <laughs> I can't give you anything other than that. Um, <laughs> so what drove you, like, it, was it just, cause you said you've written other, other genres. Um, what is it that drove you kind of into the horror genre? Again, it was my dad. So like he, he wrote the first book length scholarly analysis of Stephen King. So this was at a time where like, I can remember going to elementary school with a Stephen King book in my hands and one of the teachers pulling me aside and kind of asking gently if I was troubled or if there were issues, because like, if you had a Stephen King book, you were one step away from, you know, seriously an opium den or something like that. And so my dad, he's this academic going, no, no, this is actually literature. There's important stuff happening in the horror genre. And so he wrote a dozen books on Stephen King and he wrote stuff about Dean Koontz and all these people. So I can remember, um, you know, getting like a head sized box from Stephen King, Banger Maine. And it turned out to be a, a typewritten galley copy of it months before it came out. Um, I can remember my dad inviting this guy over who was this young student, but it, my dad had seen this student film of his and he's like, this guy's really going places. His name's Frank Darabont and I think he'll be huge. And he's the guy who did like the Green Mile, the Shawshank uh, Redemption. He co-created The Walking Dead, you know. So these were just people who were kind of in and out of our lives. And, and we grew up with it. You know, we grew up reading it. I grew up with screams in the next room when I went to bed because my dad would be watching a horror movie or I can remember going on a long trip and drifting off. You know, I'm like six years old and my mom is reading my dad, the mist as we drive. So, you know, I didn't have much choice in the matter. I I'm glad I write other stuff as well, but horror was really central just to the whole growing up process. Yeah. Wow. What a wild childhood to be like, yeah. oh yeah, Stephen King sent us this thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> wait, and wait, my what? dad literally, he's like looking on the porch. He's like, if this is a human head, I'm going to be very disappointed. You know? So it was, <laughs> it was just super cool. And like, even when I was 12 or 13, I think I was um, thinking about, oh, maybe I'll write for a living. And my dad was like, would you like to talk to Dean Koontz? And he just called him, you know, and I talked to Dean and Dean Koontz, by the way, wins like best award for nice human. Cause he just dropped everything and talked to this rando teenager for like an hour and a half you know um so yeah it was really cool and it taught me also that horror people are super nice like there are genres that surprise you with what you read um but i'm continually surprised at the people behind horror you know and i like i'll go to horror conventions everybody's just the nicest person ever um you go to comedy it's a 50 50 split some of those people are pissed off all the time you know but horror it's like everybody's dealing with their demons in a very forward way so they tend to be really accepting and kind yeah that was kind of like our jump into this you know the pre-interview period yeah where like you popped in you're like happy to be here and i was <laughs> like okay i didn't know what to expect because i've had a couple of interviews where people come in and they're just like dark makeup and like brooding 
and they're yeah, like, yes, no. let's discuss the topic. <laughs> no. And and it's funny because people expect that of Horn. I can't tell you the number of times I've been on a podcast and they're at the end, they're like, you were really nice. Like they were expecting me to be doing some kind of a hex on them. And then they show up and their faces falling off or something like that. Um, and horror people really were like, look, everybody has their demons is what I say is everyone's got their demons, but horror writers they haven't got rid of them, but at least they're making them dance for their supper. Um, and if you're living that kind of a life where you're being very sort of telling other people and open about what your problems are and the things that scare you, you tend to be kind of okay with things that scare and worry other people. And it makes a nice for a nice interaction. Yeah. So how do you go about writing? I know this is a, an immensely broad question, but how do you start writing a horror novel? <sighs> There, a lot of times it's just it, it, it's really banal like people have this idea of creatives is like we put our feet up and we we look into god's eye and wait until the angels exhale and then like we're overtaken by knowledge and in reality it's a lot of the time it's just me walking around with a legal pad mumbling to myself as i ask questions you know so i'll be like well it's time to write a scary book because the fans haven't had one in a while you know it's been like you know, it's been science fiction like this one, or it's been humor or whatever. And so what's scary? Haunted house. No, I did that two years ago. Okay. What else is scary? Underwater. Oh, that's a good idea. And you just keep asking these questions. And if you ask them with enough specificity, it starts narrowing down. And then when you've got kind of something that's scary in an area, a place that's scary, you say, and who would be most traumatized by that? And that's how you design your character, who's going to be your main character or your central people. Um, and from there, you just kind of, what I do is I end up usually with about a one page outline just to keep me from totally getting lost in the weeds. Um, but I don't do a ton of outlining unless it's a really complicated book simply because that seems an awful lot like just taking dictation from myself and like it, it kills all the fun of it, you know? So I have this road, road map to keep me from, you know, I'm going from New York to Los Angeles, but along the way, if I end up in, you know, upper Canada, that's fine. Um, and that's fun. Part of the fun and joy of it. Yeah. You're just writing with at least the end in sight and not yeah. just like, I don't I, know how this is going to end. Yeah. And I know I've got to get there, and, but how I get there is often confusing and fun and delightful. Like I'll go and sit in public places, you know, like a Starbucks or McDonald's or someplace that has like free Wi-Fi and refillable drinks of some kind. And I'll just sit there and I'll giggle. And I'm this Unabomber guy, like I have the whole coat on, you know, when I go out, I've got my big trench coat and I'm sitting by myself with a computer looking very extremist, I'm sure. And then I just start giggling maniacally to myself, which leads to some inter interesting interactions. Um, but I, yeah, it's the, the fun part is where your subconscious like barfs something up all of a sudden. And obviously you thought of it because it came from you, but it's genuinely a surprise. Like your, your brain had it kind of behind this curtain. And it was like, and now ta-da! and it's just hysterically fun when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, Oh, that came from somewhere deep inside. Right. I am messed up. <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, no, it was really interesting to hear you say like, okay, who would be most traumatized by this experience? Let's make them the main character. Because that is like a genuine thought that actually I didn't consider being one of the first thoughts. I thought you're like, oh, and we'll just write this character and they will eventually have a problem with the situation and not like, oh, no, their problem with the situation comes first. Yeah. And, and that makes it really powerful because like 
yeah, you know, a good example is Jaws, the movie Jaws, you know, and you end up with this sheriff who is deathly afraid of the water being the guy who's got to go out, you know, miles from shore and go up against this, tar- this shark in its own turf, you know, and I think it just makes it more interesting because whenever you're dealing with that fear, it makes the character have to grow in unexpected ways, you know, and just like in Jaws, the sheriff wasn't like, well, I'm going to learn to be an Olympic level swimmer, you know, he had to come up with kind of a workaround. I'm not going in the water. So here's what we're going to do. And then of course, when it all falls to pieces and, and the shark ends up tossing them in the ocean, how do you adjust to that? And, and I think that readers react to that because that's, that mirrors life, you know, everything that happens to us, no matter who you are, your life is the hardest thing that's ever happened to you. And so you don't want to downshift for fiction and be like, well, I'm going to read about like mild struggles of a person today. You want to read about them really going through the ringer. And there's something cathartic and something that teaches us when we do that. Yeah. Uh, what's the quote? Like the worst thing that's ever happened to you is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And it's, yeah. all, it's all a spectrum yeah. of things. <laughs> Yeah. And like people are, oh, I want to be this billionaire because they have no troubles. No, they're, they have their troubles too. And they're different troubles than mine and different troubles than yours. But like, there is no human spectrum where one day you wake up and you're just trouble free, you know, because life rubs us up against other things. And that's something that's wonderful and amazing about it. But it's also scary because we have to react to all these different ideas and different realities and different situations that yesterday we never even dreamed existed. Right. So you've right, you write this character that's going to have an obviously hard time with this situation. Um, do you also write, yes, maniacal hands. Um, <laughs> do you also write with like a specific audience in mind for each book yeah. or do you just kind of try and keep it, you know, like, in the weeds enough that everyone can get into it. So a little bit of both, you know, I used to be a lawyer, so I can't just give yeses or nos because you don't get to bill 500 bucks an hour for a yes or no. You have to be like, it depends, you know? Um, So it depends. I do like the books to be broad enough that people can like them. You know, I'm, Uh, my first and biggest priority is taking care of my family. And so if I'm going to write some avant-garde thing where it's like, we're going to talk about the existential crises of existence as seen through the lens of a dewdrop on a dying dandelion. Like that's really cool, but it's not going to sell very much. Um, And so I'm trying to make sure I have a broad enough concept that it's interesting to lots of people. Um, But I definitely have my fans in mind. You know, there's people um, who they call themselves Michael Brent's minions and it's tongue in cheek. It's a lot of fun, but like there's, (laughs) I have a subscriber fan mail of like 30,000 people and those people expect certain things from Michael Brent Collings books. Um, And I don't mind that it, it actually makes it interesting because I'm constantly having to go, how can I give them this thing but in a way they've never seen from me or anyone else before. And that keeps it really interesting. And it keeps you on your toes. If, if somebody's like dance any way you want, and I'll give you a hundred out of a hundred, there's no stress, but there's also not much expertise. If someone's like, I want you to do an Irish jig backwards with one hand tied behind your back on a wooden leg, you're like, well, now I'm going to have to learn some crap, you know? Um, And, and that keeps you functioning at a higher level of, of, 
performance, I think. Um, you know, when an author gets so big, they don't answer to anybody, almost inevitably that author starts putting out junk afterwards because their laziness is taking control. And rather than saying, how do I fix this? They're just like, it's good. It's already good. Um, and I never want to get to that point. Yeah, it seems like a hard place to be. Like you don't have, and I guess it's a fortunate problem but you don't have like the struggle of being like, wow, what if this book doesn't sell at all? You're just like, no, I know people are going to buy it. I have, you know, a hundred thousand pre-orders because I put the title out. It, it seems like a fortunate problem, but also it would be hard to write against because if I knew like somebody just said, Hey, write any book and I'll give you a hundred thousand dollars. Like, I, I don't feel like I'd be able to put my all into it because I knew the outcome no matter what. Yeah. And and there's that. I mean, I got to be honest, that doesn't affect me as much because um, I have severe mental health disorders. And one of them means I approach myself through a lens that starts out with hatred. You know, um, I don't like myself. You know, I do intellectually like, I'm, I, you know, I look at my kids and I go, they're amazing. And I look at my wife and she's fantastic. And, and hopefully they liked something in me and that's why they're this way, you know? Um, so I have to take a little bit of credit for it when I'm thinking it out that way. But, you know, as an emotional visceral response to anything I do, the automatic is yuck. Um, and like with a lot of life, you can either be burdened and destroyed by these situations, or you can be like, how can I harness this and use it? And so I harness that distaste. And what it does is it forces me to always, you know, to continue acting above my previous level. Um, so, and, and also I've known people who, um, they were millionaires for a while and now they can't pay the rent. So like, especially in the arts, there's no guarantee that what's successful today will be successful tomorrow. Um, the only guarantee is whatever you just did. And so I'm always, you know, approaching it with like, this is my last hurrah and I have to impress everybody with this because the world of media is so fast now. It's not like, well, I messed up, but give me six months and I'll do better. It's why well, you messed up onto the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. That is, I, I think, imperceptibly difficult for a lot of us that don't have to like, you know, live and die on your next publication. You know, like I have, I'm not huge to the level where like, if I have a bad episode, everyone leaves, but I do see it in the numbers where like, if I put out an episode, like I can see how popular it is within a day. Most of the yeah. time as it's like, Oh, look, this one wildly beat the average or no one is downloading this. Apparently nobody cares about this topic. And I was the only one that like wanted this to happen. <laughs> I thought it would be great. Well, and that's a problem with today too, I think is we have this avalanche of data that's really helpful in helping us make our next moves but it forces so many people to act quickly. You know, like they talk about hindsight being 2020 and it is, but only if you can get far enough down the road to really examine it. You know, if you like put up a picture and people five minutes later are going, oh, there's not a hundred likes. This must be a crappy picture. 
there could be other things happening. You know, it's a holiday or, you know, just bad luck. People are all away from their phone for this five minutes. And, and that stresses a lot of people out, especially kids, you know, they obsess with that refresh button and pulling down on their iPhone so that a new screen appears because they're like, maybe in the next little click, it'll be different. And that can be really crippling. I mean, it's good to have all that info, but just it hitting you creates this false sense that I must do everything now. And that's a really good way to not just make mistakes in a business setting, but be really unhappy as a human. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. But speaking of being happy, this is my attempt to transition. You like it? Segway! <laughs> um, obviously, you have a lot of books, right? We we're talking about like the backlog of 50 books in here. Which of these has been your favorite? Oh, I get that question all the time. And it's the easiest question in the world to a- answer because my favorite book forever and always will always be whichever one I just finished um, because it's done. You know, like if it gets far enough back, honestly, you forget about them. I, w- I was like at this, there was this um, book review group in the Barbados or some, you know, exotic place. And they had me Skype in for their little meeting and they had this trivia contest and it was about one of my books and no one can answer the question. And the lady turns to me, who's running it. And she goes, what's the answer? And I'm like, I don't even know what book you're talking about, which was really embarrassing, (laughs) Um, but they fade, you know? So the one that I just finished, that's the one I'm like, oh, thank goodness it's over. It's completed. I wrote the end and sure there's like marketing I have to do. And I have to, you know, I, do interviews and appearances and stuff, but at least that part of my brain gets like a five minute rest before we jump out of the plane again and start the whole process over again. (laughs) Yeah. It was one of these that like, I got a lot of people asking to be like, Oh, what's his favorite book? What's his favorite book? But I'm like, you know, given your answer earlier, you're like, you put your all into the newest thing, like whatever it is, I got to beat all of my old stuff with this new one. So like, yeah, if you, if you hadn't said whatever your newest book was like, I'd have been pretty surprised if you're like, (laughs) you know, there could always be a soft spot. Like, Oh yeah, this is the one I'm most sentimental about, but you're like, yeah, the thing I was just working on, I'm really excited about because why wouldn't I be? (laughs) Yeah. And, and that's another lie of social media, especially in media in general. It's like, they're always looking at the youngest, newest thing, you know, and, and, we're not created to peak at the age of 18, hopefully, you know, there's a, especially goodness gracious men and women, both were being told, like, unless you look like Thor or, you know, whatever the newest Marvel it girl is, you are too old and ugly. And in reality that like demeans an entire swath of human complexity. So yeah, I'm like, you know, I'm middle-aged, but hopefully I'm still getting better. And if there ever comes a point where I'm like, I just suck now, I'm not going to keep making sucky stuff. I'm going to try and shift to something different because um, in the arts, you know, you want, at least my personal belief is you should leave the place a little better than it was when you got here. Um, And so if you're just kind of coasting on one title, that's fine. And I'm not ripping on people who do, but I think there's also other ways you can spend your time and energy to really focus on improving things. Yeah, I think so too. And, you know, working in something like this, like in the arts, you know, you learn more talents and you pick up new skills and you learn from the wisdom of others. Like it's something that you can always improve on. It's not like, you know, if you were an Olympic level deadlifter, like, yeah, there is a cap somewhere in there. Statistically, there has to be a peak eventually, but 
Like, that's not what we're talking about. Yeah. And, and there's so many, it, art reflects life and it reflects it in its complexity. It's infinite complexity. You know, you, one of the things that I do is like, and we all do this. We have an argument with our spouse, with our friend, with our significant other in our heads, you know, before it even starts, I'm like, she's going to get mad because I put on this outfit and she told me to put on that outfit and I'm going to say, but I don't like that outfit. And she's going to say, but I made it for you. And, and then what happens of course, is I get there and I go, well, I don't like that outfit. And she's like, my mother died yesterday. You know, something completely <laughs> off the wall that you were not expecting. And you can never predict those, those arguments. You know, they never go the same way you thought they would. And that's what the people, you know, best, you know, and then you're out there rubbing up against strangers and this world opens up. So yeah, it's wonderful to be able to create things, not just books or, you know, paintings, anything that you're creating is going to have a little kind of like glimmer of that, of that infinite brightness of humor, human interactions and possibilities. So yeah, it's really neat because there isn't like, oh, I scored a hundred out of a hundred. I can't do better with this book. Well, no, no one can do better with that book because that book's the past. Now I'm going to do something different and see if I can have a whole different success story. And maybe it's monetary or maybe it's just, you know, individual, oh, I didn't think I could do that thing. Um, but those are both valuable experiences. So yeah, it's wonderful to be able to just kind of like keep climbing that mountain. Yeah. On the flip side of this question, uh, do you have like a couple in there that have been like distinct fan favorites that you will hear about from till the end of time? Yeah, for sure. Um, there is a series I write called the I Am Legion series. And the first book is this straight horror novel. It's called Strangers. And it's this family wakes up entombed in their own home. Like they've been sealed in with, you know, their sheet metal over the windows and stuff because there's a serial killer who wants to have some alone time with them. Um, and I wrote it and it did pretty well. And then seven years later, I was like, what happened to the killer after it ended? And I started writing this book called Stranger Still. And it blew up even more popular than the first one was. And now fans are constantly being like, when are we going to see the next Legion book? Because that's the killer's name is Legion. Because um, they want him to have this next adventure. He's morphed from just an evil, nasty axe murderer, serial killer into like if Batman was really upset all the time, you know, um, <laughs> out there aggressively fixing problems. And so I get a lot of emails about that. Um, I also have like little niche ones. The one I probably get asked about a sequel for more than any other um, is a book I wrote called Lost Girl. And it it's one of my least successful books from a point of view of sales. Um, but if I get an email that's like sequel in the heading, I go, I bet it's going to be Lost Girl. And people, the ones who liked that book just love it and want to find out what happens next in that series. So there's always fan favorites, right? The the continuing through line is right now, at least I want more Legion. Um, and that's awesome because that's the next book up after this one. Uh, this one over here, Legion should be hitting around Halloween. So I'm, I'm stoked to be able to give it to them. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's awesome. Um, so let's, let's talk about this one. I don't know where I am on the screen know, in right? comparison to it. <laughs> um, for those listening, there is an image on screen of his newest book and it says coming June 30th light years from home um let's talk about it like what is the newest book um it is oh so it's this book arguably is the only book i've ever written that might have a cooler backstory than between the covers story um because 
I had a manager in Hollywood for years and years, a very nice lady named Kathy um, Moraviov, and she worked so hard for me and we parted ways eventually um, in a nice way. We're still friends and stuff. So she calls me out of the blue and she's like, can we talk? Um, I want to discuss a business proposition. And I figured she was going to be like, you know, there was a previous buyer who was interested, who's interested again, and let's get this going. And instead she says, I know this guy from India, um, quite wealthy, who wants to make a movie. So he's got a screenplay being shopped around Hollywood. And he'd also like to have a successful book behind it. So he asked if I knew anyone who could do that. Uh, and that's you. So would you novelize the book for this as yet unmade movie? Um, and I read the screenplay and it was a lot of fun. And the gentleman from India who was behind it all was just a delightful person. So, you know, if you can get a fun story, neat people to work with and a paycheck that clears, that's like, you know, the golden opportunity of life for a writer. Um, so it's about this, this group of kids who go into the woods for a lab assignment. They've got to collect some stuff and are kidnapped by three aliens who are surveying the earth and end up being brought back to their home where there's an intergalactic war of extinction going on. And these three kids are trying to, you know, navigate a very big existential crisis about we're not alone in the universe, along with plus the planet we're on, which isn't ours, is probably going to explode in a couple of days, you know, and how do you deal with all that stuff? So it's a lot of fun. It's a very much a... Um, I, it's not exactly lighthearted because some crap goes down in it, but there's definitely a lot of humor and fun. So people looking at it are like, what it's, what's it like? Most I'd say, if you liked, you know, Goonies kind of thing, then this is going to be something you can really enjoy. Yeah. Boy, just tack on the existential crisis in front of the <laughs> uh, looming doom. Boy. Uh, you know, we got to make it interesting <laughs> for people. Well, art, art works best when it's, when it's entertain. I think art needs to be entertaining and interesting first. You know, like I disagree with people who believe that art needs to be understood only by people who have studied this piece for eight years. You know, I think it should be understood and approachable immediately, but I also think it works best when underneath that there's stuff happening that mirrors our universe because that's where we come out, not just having escaped, but also having a better chance with what's really happening. Yeah. Well, and it's not like, you know, if you read this book and you're like, cool, a great piece of fiction, you also have to walk away with the thought, like, what if tomorrow I was proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was extraterrestrial life and it wasn't just like existing in the universe. It was in contact with us. Yeah. Like, yeah, it fiction challenges our assumptions and that's good. It, it, it really does prepare us for possibility. And that's a wonderful thing. I think the preparing us for possibility is one of the great things fiction does. The other great thing any art does is create communities. You know, that's, that's the great super power of humanity is to be able to tell stories. And as we tell the ones that matter most, that kind of determines the flow of human history. It determines what we're going to look at, what we're going to focus on, what we're going to talk about. And all that goes back to storytellers. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got this one coming out and then obviously a Legion book later, two separate genres. Is it harder for like a horror novel to break into the market than it is for say fiction? I it, That's a tough question because a lot of it depends on timing. You know, there are times where it's like horror is really big right now. Um, and then there's times where it's a tougher sale. I think if you want to break into Hollywood, horror is a great way to go because like 
I talk to people who want to be making movies and they go, I've written this script. It's like the Avengers on steroids. And my response is, so you think they're going to spend $500 million on a brand new writer with no track record. That's a really tough sell. Um, but if you're going in there, like I have strangers has come so close to being made into a movie like a million times. And I, part of it is simply because it's cheap. You know, it all happens in one house and there's like six people involved. And so horror is really good. If you want to break into Hollywood, if you're talking about, you know, mainstream success, it's not the biggest market. Um, and that has pluses and minuses. The plus is you can be a bigger fish in a small pond. Um, the minus is you're not going to be, you know, the next JK Rowling or the next somebody everybody reads because some people just don't like horror. That makes sense. Um, it does seem, I don't know if this is a thing or if it's just part of like how we rate movies uh, like in the, you know, PG 13 or the R setting, a lot of horror seems to fall into the, like the R category. Um, is that part of why they also seem to generally budget less? Um, I think the R category thing is just a subject matter issue. You know, you're setting out scaring people. It's not going to be like pissed off parents writing the theater, you know? Um, and so there's kind of that aspect. So with it, again, in Hollywood, they're talking about actual logistics. If I'm a writer, I can talk about going to space and it costs me nothing. Um, it's just exactly the same cost as any other story. Um, but if you're a movie maker and you're talking about aliens and spaceships and, you know, entire sets that have to be designed, it's a much bigger deal. So again, that's why horror is such a nice thing for, um, new, Oh, B just got in here. <laughs> I, I just heard that. That was weird. Oh my goodness. That was awesome. Where did it go? Well, we'll hope I don't get stung and die. Um, but yeah, so in Hollywood, you're talking about actual movie logistics. And so horror is always just going to be cheaper by nature. It's cheaper to make buckets of fake blood than it is to create from nothing an entire, you know, Thanos based universe or whatever. Um, but as far as breaking in, if you're talking about can it be more successful or less successful, just starting with the genre is always going to be a mistake because you're starting with marketing before you have a product. Um, a lot of people in lots of different fields are like, we got a market, we got a market, we got a market, we got a market. And I'm like, that's great, but you have to have a deep product line as well. You know, if people go to grab your thing off the shelf because you marketed it, that's fantastic. But then if they can't grab the next one, you've spent all that money for a single sale. And so, you know, you have a backlist, you, it's going to be helpful. Um, and I wrote 10 books, 15 books before I started making serious money, you know, and that many screenplays before I sold one. So if you're talking about how do I break in? Well, write what you love, write it a lot, because the more you write, the more chances you're going to have, you know, you're just throwing those dice over and over and over again and hoping that sooner or later you win the bet. Yeah. It seems like, you know, partially an exposure level, because if you had, you know, never written uh strangers like some people inevitably would not have found lost girl yes like yes. There, there's always going to be some crossover between your fan base and i think that's everything like ever everything yeah. any creative does has that crossover i know the show has it because i have more total subscribers than i do day one downloads 
<laughs> right. <laughs> Which is like, ah, I see what's happening now. Um, yeah. So it's like, yeah, and that's part of that's part of this show that I've openly acknowledged, which is just like not everyone's going to enjoy everything. So download what you want. And that's part of me. But like, you know, you always hope that if you write the serial killer aspect and then you write like an alien in space story, you would hope people would read both because they enjoy your work and they trust you to write a good story. Yeah, you want to you want to show them that you're competent and kind. I think if you if the two K's competent and kind, um, because if you're competent, they're like, well, I didn't love this, but I liked aspects and I'll take a chance on the next one. And then kindness can't be understated as well in a world, again, where people are really emphasizing like zingers and gotchas and kind of like callous cruelty for likes and views. You know, if you can stand there and be like, I, I actually am just kind of hoping you have a good day. People. I have had people who have bought all of my books and then written me an email and said, I don't like horror. I don't like fantasy. It pretty much I read nonfiction DVD instructions, but I write your, I read all, or I buy all your stuff um, because you just seem like a nice guy, you know, and I'll take that. That money goes to my family, whether it's because they loved the book or because they thought I was a cool person. Um, but if you can be a nice person and a competent person, your chances of standing out from the crowd increase exponentially. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely makes sense. So, you know, like you said, you got to get out there. You got to try. Would you recommend people just try writing any genre they are interested in? Yes. Yeah. If you want to write just, it doesn't matter. And, and you never know what wonderful thing will happen. You know, you're like, ah, oh, all I really like to write is Facebook posts. Cool. Write an entire book of poetry consisting of nothing but Facebook posts. You know, there is there is all this opportunity for beauty and interest and wonder. And it doesn't matter where you go. You know, everybody um, was like, no one would ever buy this kind of book except for they did. And then Fifty Shades of Grey became this gigantic international success that literally invents the concept of mommy porn, you know, is what they called it. And if that lady, um, if she sat down and talked to an agent, she's like, look, I was going to do this thing where it's really into BDSM and heavy sexuality as a mainstream book. I can't imagine any agent being like, do that. That sounds like a winner, you know, but she did it anyways. Um, and it, tapped into something whether and i'm not saying like i love it or hate it i'm just saying that's a good example of that's not a book anyone looking at it on paper would be like this is going to make a billion dollars you know so yeah write the stuff that you love and that interests you and even if it's not your big hit you've learned something you know and the next one you've learned something and the next one and then again if you've got 30 books the chances of the right person coming at the right time and finding book 15, that's fine. You know, strangers became its biggest hit again, seven years after I wrote it because I wrote the second book. Um, and, but it wouldn't have happened without writing that book seven years before and then writing 20 books in between to keep it all going. Yeah. Well, and you're that much more polished when you get into the second one. So I imagine people are like, man, this book just got way better. Like all <laughs> so of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just keep practicing with anything. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, if you drive trucks for a living or if you write books, you know, there's, there is a level of competence that you accrue over time, especially if you keep trying new and different things. If all you if you're a trucker and you drive from you know, Nevada to Utah, and that's your route, you're, of course, you're going to be pretty limited. You're going to know that route perfectly. 
Um, but if you're willing to go different places with your art, you know, if you're like, well, I got an offer to go to Tierra del Fuego, let's try it. You know, yeah. um, that leads to some amazing opportunities and wonderful things. Well, it's one of those that like, like you said, you never know what's going to be popular. Fifty Shades of Grey was unheard of before its time. But if you walked in with a pitch where you said, hey, I'd like to write this book that is survival horror and in it, I am going to just kill children. People would be like, wow, that doesn't sound like it's going to sell well at all. And then it becomes the Hunger Games. And you're like, the Hunger Games at its core is like, it's a dystopian world. And it's this setting with a, a much greater plot line in mind. But like, it is still like a survival genre with like a constant horror aspect where they're in threat of death. And then everyone in that book series was between 13 and 18 and they all yep. die except for two of them in the first. Yeah. Book. So, <laughs> right. so it's like, yeah, you did just mass murder a bunch of kids like as the theme of your book, even though it like has this greater meeting that is still like you're described badly one sentence liner. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that goes to, to show the, how you sell something matters too, because it, you know, I've read Hunger Games. My wife loves all those books and my kids love them. And I, I thought they were good too and everything. And, and I read them and thought these are really cool. But yeah, if she had gone in and, and been like, so here's my idea. I want to have kids murdering each other for 90 minutes. That's an automatic pass. It doesn't matter who you are. You know, Stephen King or J.K. Rowling could walk in and go, so mass murder start to finish and it's just a pass um but you know she sold it and the studio sold it and the publisher sold it as this cool adventure with you know intrigue and sexual suspense between will they or won't they ever get together and a love story and all of these different things and yeah at its core it is kids killing each other which is horrific but it also shows that you can get away with just about anything and i don't mean get away like put one over on people but there is no subject, no idea that is so difficult. It cannot be talked about. Um, Some ideas demand care and some ideas demand nuance. You know, one of the great tragedies of our life is that everything is communicated in bumper sticker sound bites. Um, And that means we can't communicate complex and lovely ideas as easily. Um, But you can talk about anything to anyone if you do it properly. You know, kids lived through the Holocaust. So if you're sitting down and saying an adventure where kids die, there are people who are like, oh, kids can't handle that. And I go, have you ever read history? Because kids live that every day today. Um, And as soon as we start talking about no fly zones, like you can't talk about this, you can't discuss this. That's the downfall of humanity. You know, as long as we have a basic respect for each other and a willingness to discuss ideas, um, I think we tend to self-correct better and better. But as soon as you say, no, this is my concept. And if you're on that side, we're enemies forever. Well, then you're cutting yourself from any off from any possibility of improvement. Yeah. Yeah. It is entirely about how you do it. And also just like not callously expending people, I think yeah. is, is a big thing is I can't just be like, and then the kid died and we're moving on. Like the, I think I just talked about this on my last episode with a, uh, uh, a movie critic. Mm-hmm. And so I was saying like, you know, if you're going to kill a character, no matter their age or whatever, like it has to be specific and with a purpose, because if you just kill a character, like, 
you are writing off all future potential that character could ever have and any plot line you could ever, you know, adventure through with them. And it Done. better, yeah, it better be for the sake of something longer term than the next sentence. Yeah. Because- and that's so, I think you're right. Like, not sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but a hundred percent and, and, and fiction writers are guilty of this so much. You read like this kid goes through the grinder and he's beaten and abused and there's an incestuous relationship. And at the end of it, you're like, and why? Because honestly, I think the author is a mean spirited person, you know, like they just hate people Um, versus why? Well, so that he could grow so that he could overcome so he could show the, you know, the brilliance of the human spirit or whatever it is. But a hundred percent, I can't agree more like just putting your characters through the ringer because you want to show people you know how to be cruel there's a very limited um i mean just audience for that first of all you're not going to become like a big bestseller if you're just you know look i can create saw 18 i'm a genius i can trap people and hurt them and there's interest in that but it's much more limited than look let's talk about humanity and what makes us work in all sorts of different situations yeah exactly um and there's a there's a great example of two character deaths one done very poorly and one done very correctly in the same movie that someone brought up to me. And it was the last Avengers movie. And they said black widow's death was handled absolutely horribly because Hmm. she has the sacrifice for a stone that is immediately gone. Yeah. And yeah, they immediately move on. Like she's dead. And when they join back together as the team, the, like the sentiment is like, wow, that sucks time to move on with the story because we're not done with the movie yeah and then they have they have tony stark's death and it is like the last 15 minutes of the movie is just covering like the effects of it and then the next movie they put out in spider-man is still addressing like the earth-shattering effects of this long-standing like consequence and it's like well you didn't give that credit to this other character at all who had a yeah. very similar level of sacrifice. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And, you know, there's reasons for it from a story perspective. I mean, that thing was already like three hours long and they're like, we're going to add another 20 minutes. Um, so of course there's always logistical reasons when it's talking about butts and seats and people just have to pee after an hour and a half, that's life. Yeah. Um, so how are we going to break it up and keep it moving? So like, I can understand why the directors and the writers made the decision to handle it like that. But I agree. Like I really enjoyed, you know, if we're talking about Marvel, I really enjoyed the Hawkeye um, series because it was very kind of low key and personal. And it really was him dealing with grief, not just the loss of his friend, but like being an ex superhero and the fact that, you know, if you're a normal human and you get beaten up and battered around, you stop moving as well. Your bones hurt, you lose your hearing, you know? And so I really liked that as sort of a more realistic rumination on the cost of heroism and what it costs even to pass it on to somebody else, because the whole thing is about him training, you know, a new Hawkeye. And so I, I really enjoyed it for those purposes, but yeah, if you're going to whack somebody, it is always preferable to have it matter. Um, if for no other reason than when you're writing people, you want every single person who walks into your story to be the hero 
of their personal story. And sometimes you don't get to know that story. It's happening off the page, you know, as backstory that you know about, but the, the readers won't. But just having that sense that they matter to themselves, that comes across as a better character, as less kind of one dimensional. You know, we've all watched, again, horror movies out it's the bimbo. She's going to get killed in the middle of act two in some gruesome way after making a sexually derogatory comment to the virgin, you know? Um, And they become stereotypes and caricatures. And each time you do that, it becomes less fun until finally it's only good for making fun of. And so, yeah, one of the best ways to not do that is to have every single character serve a greater purpose. Yeah. Well, and it leads me into asking, because you have things that have been made into movies, is there like a specific difficulty in transitioning, you know, the longer format of a book, which by definition takes quite a while to read and to process uh, into such a short timeline? Yeah. And there, there's, there are different media. So that's the, the basic problem that a lot of people don't even think about is that they do different things. So if you're talking about a stage play, it's always a person versus a person. It's just two people against each other. You know, that's where the conflict comes, which is why you can have a whole play where it's two people on a bench waiting for a third person who never shows up, you know, and that's the play. Um, If you're talking about a book, it's typically the person versus themselves. And that's reflected in the structure. You know, the biggest blocks of text are internal dialogue. They're the narrator's observations. Um, The character who's the narrator is telling us what they feel and how it impacts their soul, you know, Um, and movies, they're about people versus the outside world, which is why you do have big blockbusters like the Avengers movies or Twister or, you know, things where the universe is literally going to explode. And so one of the biggest problems when you're transitioning from one to the other is saying, how can I make this big explodey Avenger thing? into a personalized, internalized moment and vice versa. How can I go from, you know, long paragraphs where this person is just thinking about an injury, a grief, a loss, and turn it into a single concrete image on a screen that somehow packs all that in. Um, I think if you can remember that fundamentally they do different things, that helps a lot. Um, But people always get upset too, because they're like, well, it wasn't, you know, true to the book, or it was too true to the book, or it was different than the movie, or it was the same as the movie. Um, And so you're going to have to approach every story as its own thing. Definitely, there's a lot of things I can get away with in books that I can't get away with in a movie. You know, I sold a a screenplay and I remember having this conversation with the producer. They had already bought it. And he's like, so at the end, because it was this twisty, turny kind of head game, um, do the kids die? And I said, yes, they're absolutely dead. And he just looked and said, no, they're not. You know, and that was me being informed. (laughs) This is a box office question. And this was 10 years ago. You know, now we've had movies like Hereditary and things where the kids are not at all off limits. Um, But 10 years ago, it was like, no, we can't really do that and still sell it to our audience, you know? Um, So each different format carries its own weights and its own freedoms and funds. And you just kind of have to find the way to take the soul and move it from one to the other. Yeah. Well, and there's, I mean, there's things that like, yes, when you make the movie, you can play with the soundtrack that like sets the entire scene and you can have a visual like you can have the monster in the room with them which is something you can otherwise only describe on paper um but yeah you run into that like pro list 
good things con list it has to be short because if you yeah. made it the same length as the book people are going to have to watch this in installments <laughs> well and vice it seems weird but like i'm so my dad he's this critic and i remember him the one time i ever saw us throwing a book across the room and he was so upset with it and it was a novelization of a movie written by the person who'd written the script so you'd think it would be good um, but I talked to my dad, like, what just happened there? And he's like, this person doesn't understand that you can communicate a hundred thousand things with an image. And he's trying to do it in the book as well. And so I'm on page eight of a single flash of the screen, you know, like, because you can provide the genre, the feel, the sound, you know, everything hits you at once in a movie and in a book, you're like, I have to figure out the four things that I can tell them about that will imply all the rest, because otherwise it's an entire chapter about the set design, you know, and nobody wants that. <laughs> right. No, I, I, uh, I've referenced this, I think a couple of times in other interviews, but I did an interview with Shane Salk, who is a very well renowned uh, audio drama creator now. And he says, one of his favorite things is like, yes, it, because it's an audio drama, it has a soundtrack. And it has voice actors. He goes, but what it doesn't have is a visual setting. Yeah. It's like I literally through audio cannot provide one. And also I didn't write one. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, so I love hearing people like, oh man, when they were down at the Creek side and like it's nightfall and the moon is out. He's like, I didn't write any of that. <laughs> right. Like I gave you water sound in the background and a conversation and you put them on a creek side under a moon <laughs> yeah and that's that's part of the fun part of creation is like i have this concept in my head but by the time it gets through the translation of words because words are a translation of my inner thoughts to an externalized format and then it's translated again into your brain like it's the telephone game um and you absolutely have people come up to you and talk to you and say you know, oh, I love the scene in the creek. And I was like, I don't think it was a creek. I think it was a river in my head, you know? Um, and, and that's something you have to kind of be okay with or even be happy with. I think it's cool when that happens because it shows they're making the story their own. Some people get really precious about it and they're like, no, you must understand it the way I made it. Um, and that, it, that limits the form, first of all. It makes people angry, second of all. And like, if you can roll with the flow and, and just deal with life and kind of roll with the punches, um, you're probably going to have a longer career as an artistic person because people get really fed up with people that are like, it has to be this way. Yeah. All right. I know I've kept you for a while. I got a couple listener questions and I will release you from duties here. <laughs> Pleasant duties. Yeah. So one of the listener questions, and I hope at least now knowing the theme of strangers is not true. Um, is any of your writing based on real life events? <laughs> yes, all of it. I mean, I, I haven't been chased through the woods by an axe murderer, but you know, the any time that someone comes to me and says, I love this one scene, it's almost always something I observed. I'm a much better reporter than creator, I guess. Um, and I put a lot of myself in some of the stories I wrote. We, my wife and I lost a kid. Um, and I wrote a book called Apparition about a family that loses a kid, and then it starts this horrible spiral. Um, and there was tons of that 
that was about me in there. Um, and then I wrote one book called The Longest Con, where the main character is actually Michael Brent Collings. Um, I wrote, I, I have a bunch of really famous friends and I called them up. I'm like, hey, do you want to be in a book? And they're like, oh, like a version of me. And I said, nope, you. And so the story is that all the authors that you see at comic cons, they're signing books, but some of them are also there to keep supernatural creatures from murdering folks in the comic con, you know, because people cosplay as monsters, but monsters also come to cosplay as people. Um, so with the longest con, there's tons of me in that. And I reference my, my kids, my wife, my mom. Um, and that's really fun to do. And it makes it real. Um, it makes it hard too. Cause one day I, I had a character based on one of my kids and I came home and I was just like wrecked. And my wife said, what's wrong? And I said, I killed my son today because the kid died in the book. And I was kind of modeling it off my oldest. So I thought, how would he survive this situation? And the answer was he wouldn't. Um, and it was really hard to kind of wrap my head around, but it made for a really good scene. Yeah. And I mean, I guess there's always going to be some reality to the writing. Uh, yeah. It's just a matter of like, I've never been locked in a house with a serial killer. But... Yeah. But we've, yeah, but we've all been terrified, you know, of, of somebody coming down the street at us or being in that dark alley after the club or whatever we've, and you know, the horror writer just takes that real thing and amplifies it to a much larger situation. Sure. Um, so let's see. Next listener question asked, which horror setting would be the worst to be dropped into? Oh, uh, for me, The Deep, which is a story that takes place largely 150 feet underwater. Um, and the whole genesis of that was just, I love the ocean. I like I would wave run, be on wave runners and stuff as a kid all the time. I loved it. But I like it as long as I'm on this side of it. As soon as I go onto this side of it, I panic hard. So my friends would actually take me wave running because when I bailed, they were like, it's like watching an old goofy cartoon. Like you start running across the top of the water before you have even hit it. Um, so, ah, B attack critics. Um, so that one would be my most terrifying situation would be just being put under there and then having a monster in as well. Yeah, of course. I think that's, that's probably pretty valid. Cause like deep sea creatures scare me to this day. <sighs> yeah. Um, uh, the last one I'll, I'll hit you with was somebody asking about your thoughts on co-writing. So like, is it feasible uh, do you enjoy it? What are the problems? It's, you know, it's like anything else. It's feasible. They, I don't do it because I've got, you know, a lot of stuff going on and just taking a break to do somebody else's thing is tough. Um, the benefit is anytime you're working with someone else, they're thinking of things you never would have thought of. You know, it opens up a whole area of expertise and experience that is absolutely outside your ability to comprehend until it's been made a part of the process. Um, the difficulty, of course, is you're going to be disagreeing. You're going to have to figure out who writes which thing. Um, and there's a time lapse issue. Like I will write every day until I'm tired, until my brain is full. But as soon as I'm ready to go again, I start writing. Whereas, you know, if you've got somebody else you're working with, it's like, well, I just had a new baby in the house. And so we're all sleep deprived and everything's slow or we're moving or whatever. Um, anytime you are collaborating, it brings with it most of all, just a time and energy cost. Um, but often that can be outweighed by the benefits of just having two people sparking together. And so if you want to do it and you have somebody that you love the process with, do it. If not, you know, you are allowed to fly solo as a writer. Awesome. 
All right. Well, I have immensely appreciated you coming on the show and letting me keep you for a while longer than we had scheduled. I'd love to, for you to tell people, you know, where they can find more of you or, you know, your books, all the things coming up. Uh, just go ahead and give you some time. <laughs> uh, it's super easy. So I am the only Michael Brent in the world. Like that's all one world or one word. I think there's a Michael Space Brent who's like, an underwear model or something. And obviously that's not me. Um, but if you just Google the word Michael Brent, you're going to find me very easily. You'll get my website, my Facebook, my Twitter and all that stuff. Um, you can go to, it's a little covered, I think by zoom, but if you go to bit.ly slash MBC free, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you several free books just right off the bat. Um, so I'm, I'm ubiquitous. I'm everywhere. I'm easy to find. Nice. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for doing this. I've appreciated it. Thank you. It was a super pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And thank you, dear listener, for listening to another Just Dumb Enough podcast episode. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with people you know. If you didn't like it or thought it could be better, reach out to any of the show's social medias and tell me why. I've got the show on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, pretty much everywhere if you go looking for it. If you want to suggest topics or have questions for future guests, reach out to me, dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget, you can rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, Audible, and now Podchaser, which is new and good for the show as a whole. Before I lose everyone's attention, I wanted to share that the next couple trips are set. June 8th to the 14th, I'll be in Austin, Texas, finally. I know I took a long time rescheduling that, but I will be down, I promise. And then August 4th to the 8th, I'll be in San Jose, California. I've always had a lot of fun interacting with fans in all of these places when I visit their areas, and we just get to do something fun and hang out, so I'm hoping for more of that. Also, there is potentially some very fun content that is coming with these trips, but you'll have to wait and find out, so don't forget to subscribe. Lastly, the global rankings have changed just slightly. The United States is still number one, with California, Michigan, and Virginia all neck and neck for the number two state. Number two, Canada, with Ontario just barely taking back the top spot from Alberta. Number three, France holding its place versus the longtime top-ranked country, still at number four, the United Kingdom. And lastly, number five is Australia, rising back up. I think that does it. I'll see you all in the next episode. Bye bye